Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, everybody. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of Marshall McLennan Agency and the host of Chatting Cyber Podcast. Today's cyber celebrity, Corey Simpson. Thanks for joining, Corey. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's good to be here, albeit virtually. Well, th- thanks for taking the time today. I mean, based off of your resume, I, I don't know when you find time to sleep. <laughs> it's 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 been a busy, uh, a, a lot going on in uh, the, the cyber field. Well, so so let, let, let's break that down because I, I, I think you have one of the most unique backgrounds given, you know, your history with respects to cyber risk, you know, in, in the U.S. today. Um, well, first of all, congratulations. Um, you just you just joined Ankara um, as, a, as a leader within their cyber practice. I did. Um, so up until the um, July of this this year, I was at the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. I know we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, so Patrick Murphy, uh, Representative Murphy, who I know has has also been on Chat and Cyber. Um, he he and I, uh, through our work with the commission, decided that we wanted to stay um, in the cyber field and we wanted to work together. We've known one another for. 20 years, we served together in the Army uh, at the 82nd Airborne Division, which is also where Bob Olson served. Um, So he was uh, a paratrooper way back in the day. Uh, Bob Olson is our global um, cyber practice lead at Ankara. So um, at any rate, we, uh, Patrick and I, explored a a bunch of different options and ended up at, at Ankara. It's just a tremendous company and a tremendous team there. Sure. So, so uh, again, now thinking about prior to the experience in Ankara, you know, um, uh, U.S. Army officer, federal prosecutor, uh, national law, uh, national security law practitioner, in-house senior leader, counsel, strategist. I mean, I, the the list goes on. Um, it's no wonder the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, had asked or, or tapped you to be part of their uh, prestigious group. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Solarium, what it was all about, and then we'd like to really get into, I know that you guys recently released uh, your report and your findings. I'd love to get into the weeds of the findings. Sure. So um, sort of who we were as a commission. So 14 commissioners. Um, it was bipartisan, bicameral, so two senators, um, two members of the House, two from each party. Um, and then we had, uh, it was intra-governmental, so we had four leaders from the executive branch, the deputies of defense, homeland security, and intelligence, and then the director of the FBI. So that's eight of our government officials, and then equally divided between the legislative branch and the executive. And then we had six nationally recognized experts in the field of cyber, um, representing everything from you know, Southern Electric, Tom Fanning, the CEO there, um, all the way to like Suzanne Spalding or Samantha Ravish with just experts in this field, the national security leaders. Great. Yeah. So what, last time we got together, it was actually in person. 
Um, and it was right before the report was about to be released. Yeah. Now, tell us about what, what the, the diligence that went into this report and then what some of the, the most meaningful findings were um, that were that actually did come out of the report. Uh, well, meaningful findings will probably be through the seen through the beholder. I, I think we had a um, we had so a total of 80 plus um, recommendations. And so I should expand a little bit. So I told you who the solarium was, what it was that we were tasked to do. Um, so our namesake is um, was the solarium project. Um, it was set up by Eisenhower in the early 50s, and it set our, our strategy um, against the Soviets for essentially drove it for the next 50 years. And so, um, and that was run out of the National Security Council. Um, we essentially had a tasking to do that same sort of like grand strategy for cyber. Um, so one, set the strategy for the United States in cyber to better defend ourselves. And then two, what are the, the policies um, in the, both legislative and executive that we need to implement this strategy? So what we did, our, our findings and recommendations are organized um, into essentially three layers that organize six lines of effort or pillars. Um, and then we have 82 recommendations, 80 plus recommendations within that, about 50 of which have legislative components. Just in terms of something that I'm very proud of, um, currently as uh, the Congress goes into conference on the National Defense Authorization Act, we have 29 of our recommendations currently set to become law. So it either exists in the House version, the Senate version, or is common to both. Both, um, and so if we come out with you know 25 rec of those recommendations becoming law. I think collectively what that represents is one of the largest changes we've seen in our lifetime um, with like the, I, I would say the uh, field of cybersecurity within the domestic, within the United States. So it's exciting in that regard. I think, you know, the, it's, it's hard to focus on a, a single recommendation um, or a single set of recommendations. I mean, when you're addressing everything from you know, the security of our democracy and our elections, um, all the way to like our industrial policy, supply chains. Um, and, and that is something that I um, would like to talk about as well is we've had three subsequent white papers. We released the report in March um, and then the pandemic hit. So like literally um, had the public event, I think on a Wednesday, um, went to the Hill as a staff and delivered our report uh, in person to all of the members. And then that Friday, um, Congress shut down. So um, we learned some things uh, in the pandemic. It highlighted uh, some of our recommendations and it highlighted the need for some others. Um, so we put out a white paper on the pandemic and lessons for cybersecurity that's available on our website. Um, and then we also did two subsequent, and I don't know if the supply chain paper is out. Um, if not, it will soon be posted on the website. And then we did another one on workforce um, and some of the challenges that we face there. Collect, and also there's a letter there um, from the three organizations that are looking at this sort of simultaneous and making advice to Congress. So the Solarium Commission, the AI Commission, um, and the Commission on National Service. All three of our um, commissioners got together and sent a letter and said, hey, 
you know, no matter what we do, however great our strategy is, however great our recommendations, if we don't have the people to implement that strategy, it's going to fail. Um, and right now, one in three positions that are coded in the federal government are unfilled. We've got to grow this. We've got to figure out a pipeline. We've got to improve it. And it's a national emergency. So, and then I would say one final product that I think was unique, unique to the solarium that I hope is um, a, a practice taken on by subsequent commissions is any time that we made a recommendation that began with Congress should, um, we developed a legislative proposal that supported that. So, you know, the very concise language of the report, each key recommendation, I, you know, 500 words, 350 words, but it's standing for very big changes that need to take place. Those are expanded in legislative proposals that we've sent to the Hill and also are available on the website. Um, there are a lot of people, you know, everything from advocacy groups to Hill staffers, you know, some of them said we got it right, some of them said we got it wrong, but we gave them a start point, which I think is very important um, when you're making recommendations for Congress to action. Um, so that's some bigger picture stuff. And I think a specific question, I, I may have rambled a bit there, so I apologize, but specific question is what did I think was most important? Um, and I think broadly it's, it's the recommendation for the strategy. So, um, and we can get into the specific recommendations to implement that strategy, but the strategy itself, layered cyber deterrence, um, is a whole of nation approach. And so we've looked at this too often. You know, we look at national security um, and then cybersecurity at a national level, and that it's a government responsibility. Um, it's not, it's all of our responsibilities. Um, and it's our private companies, the vast amount of um, infrastructure. Uh, supporting the cyber domain is owned and operated by the private sector. Anything that we do, um, we really have to deepen that partnership between the government and the private sector. And that, that is a big theme um, throughout the report is, is just the, the uniqueness of cyber and it as an operating space means that the government really has to fundamentally change the way it works with the private sector um, and almost look at like, hey, how can we better support you? Um, and I make a physical world analogy, like nobody, nobody says that on September 11th, the tower should have had anti-aircraft guns on them. Nobody says that. Yet every day we expect companies to go out and defend themselves from nation state actors. That's not right. We got to, we have to figure this out. And I think that's collectively, you know, a big picture takeaway. And then I think of layered cyber deterrence and kind of incorporating that whole of nation approach to this problem set, um, I think is the mentality of a defend forward. Um, and that's, there's, you know, a, a deeper exp explanation within the report, but the defending forward mentality really is you know, how are we going to, how are we looking at going about implementing layered cyber deterrence? And it means we need to be more proactive. Um, General Nakasone, um, uh, the director of the National Security Agency, talks about this a lot he, through persistent engagement or defending forward. But basically, 
Um, if all we do is react to things that are either already occurring in our system, like an intrusion has occurred, and we're always in a react mode. Um, and we are saying, and what the, re the report suggests, is that we need to be more proactive. Um, and so I think that is probably the, the most important, sort of that broad picture look at how to do better in this space as a nation. Does that answer the question? Absolutely. Um, my, my, it actually leads me into my next question. You touched upon the public-private collaboration and the need for that. If you can just dive into that a little bit more, because I think organizations typically, um, let me take a step back. Um, what we hear sometimes is, should we be collaborating with the government? Should we let the government know about a data incident post-breach? Should we be working with the FBI? What is your stance or what's the Solarium stance with private-public collaboration? It's foundationally, it has, it, it has to work, one. Um, and I don't think, um, at least the, the view of the commission, I, I, I feel is that what we have today isn't what we need moving forward. So there are some things that need to change. Um, and I think some of the recommendations speci uh, speaking specifically to that and currently in uh, one, some version of, of the NDAA is talk, talking about just sharing information. Um, we've got to get better about that. You know, there are protections that the government can give to companies in order to um, facilitate more sharing of information. And, and I use the example of like the FAA, right, the, for aircraft, they can share safety concerns and, and there can be a safety investigation that is completely non-punitive, non, but it informs the community of a safety issue and it allows us to address that. Um, we, we're saying we need notionally something like that in cyber so that companies can come to the US government and go, hey, here is what is happening. I, we've identified this threat and we, we could use some help with it. So one, I think we need to be able to open that dialogue. And then I think two, we need to provide the spaces for people to um, collaborate and share information. And that really is both a virtual space and a physical space. And so we talk about the joint collaborative environment at Data Lake, um, where we can have large data pools essentially um, and, and there can be greater, um, I, I would say, information sharing between the private sector and the government. Um, and then we're also looking at combining, you know, there are six current cyber centers, about four or seven, I think, six or seven cyber centers within the federal government, about bringing them all together and having an integrated cyber center. Um, and then having the space um, that that people can physically get together and have those interactions. And there's a, a model that is used in, um, in England. So it's GCHQ does it. It's their version of um, the National Security Agency with a not exact model, a little bit different for their nation. But it's called the Industry 100. And what they do is they pull in um, you know, leadership from a hundred different people representing industry broadly within, within their nation. Um, they get them security clearances and they kind of work together um, and collaborate for two years, a set time, and then they put, put them back and they, they rotate. 
And what that does is it allows the private sector, one, it just builds relationships. Two, it allows them to see the things that the government is seeing um, and, and understand the challenges that they're facing at like a national level. Um, so it creates a connective tissue and it creates an informed um, sort of community. Um, that's very difficult to scale here in the United States. We're just so much bigger. But I think in spirit, that, that is something that we need. We, we do need real collaboration, um, meaningful collaboration. If, if we are ever going to have the security that we seek as a nation in cyber, it has to be done with the private sector. And the only way we do that is if the government can be of a benefit in the relationship and not just, hi, I'm here, I'm the federal government, I'm here to help, I'm gonna take control of all your systems, that's never gonna work. Um, so changing that dialogue, I think, is important, too, and creating the actual forms for people to collaborate. Agreed, 100%. Shifting gears, thinking about privacy regulation now, um, you know, CCPA, GDPR, um, uh, BIPA, uh, New York Shield, so on and so, Part 500. Um, with the exclusion of GDPR here in the States, obviously, it's being governed by the states. Do you think that it would, or... or um, does the Stellarium and or yourself have an opinion in terms of a federal privacy regulation rather than there being uh, individual states having their own um, um, regulation? Yes. Um, so the Solarium made a recommendation um, in a call for a, a federal um, data privacy, data security piece of legislation. And I understand like, you know, people like you, people like me in this space, we understand the distinction between security and privacy, right? Security, confidentiality, integrity, accessibility of information, making sure only people um, that are supposed to have access have access to it is more of a, a, a privacy, right? So there is a distinction between security and privacy but what is foundational is you cannot have privacy if you don't have security. Like, so security has to come first. Um, and if you look at the prior trend, right? Like we've been through this, you, we have lived through this with data breach notifications. I forget what year it was, but mid nineties, maybe late nineties, California came out and they were the first um, to have a, a state um, data breach notification requirement. You know, here we are, however many years later, and now we have all 50 states have a requirement. They're all different. And we in our five territories, and they're all different. So we have 55 standards within the United States. And that took however many years, 20 years, 15 years to develop. We don't have that much time in this space. Um, and I mean, we, we do need to set a standard. There's, I think, some fantastic recommendations currently on the Hill. Um, so the Senate Commerce Committee will, will own this issue for the most part. Um, and both the chair and the ranking member have um, released versions of what a, a federal um, data privacy or data security um, piece of legislation would look like. Um, and then sort of, um, I think, a, a good faith effort to combine those two recommendations um, so that Senator Cantwell and Senator Wicker, um, Senator uh, Moran, um, 
M-O-R-A-N. I'm, I'm always, I mispronounce his name, but so he's the chair of uh, the Consumer Protection Subcommittee, um, and he combined, did it, I do believe, a very good faith effort to combine their two versions. Um, so you have three versions of what that may look like. Also the Solarium, we uh, drafted a version that took those three, uh, our recommendation, and, and made a proposal. Um, and I do, I'm hopeful in this space. I see you, um, a, a broad community um, that is interested um, in having this, every, you know, a, a national standard, everybody from advocacy groups all the way to bi the business community. I mean, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has advocated for this. I think there are, you know, significant sticking issues, primarily on enforcement mechanisms. Um, you know, is there going to be a private right of action? Can state attorney generals bring suit? Um, is it only going to be the FTC um, and then, or the FCC? And then how, if that is the case, um, you know, what is their rulemaking capability going to be? Um, and then, of course, you talk um, about preemption. Is it going to preempt state, state law or not? Um, and I mean, that's a very hard, you know, question. And I think the equities, you know, you see it very similar to, I think, the election uh, security debate. You know, there is a, a robust group of people from both sides of the aisle um, that feel, and I, you know, our, our democracy, our form of democracy is a very decentralized form of democracy. So what is the role of the federal government in federal elections? You know, Article 1, Section 4 allows for the, the federal government to do something clearly, other than uh, setting the time and the location, I think. But how, how far can you go when you're using common infrastructure? You know, a digital, a digital ecosystem surrounding elections is complex, and there seems to be um, a very uh, real benefit to, to essentially elevating it and having the federal government help out. However, that's just not our current form of government. And so you'll get, it should states rights, you know, break, break on the um, data security and data privacy. It's the same issues. Um, and I think you know, if we're going to do this and we're really going to offer, and there's a great piece out, it came out earlier this month um, with, di um, I think it's Weaponizing Digital Trade by, by Robert Kanaki um, in um, the Council of Foreign Relations, so CFR. It's, it's a great piece and it really talks about like where we are um, just globally and the United States and Western democracies need to come together and offer a competing version of the internet. Um, Kanaki's like big picture, like macro uh, perspective, at least as, as I see it, um, is that the splinter net is real, right? China and Russia are offering a version of the internet that is different from what it's surveillance by design, vice security by design or privacy by design, right? And so it's saying that the Western democracies really need to get together, create these digital trade zones. Implicit in that is that we could come to an agreement on things like privacy um, and security of data. Like we have to figure this stuff out. And I think not only are we gonna quickly have to figure it out as a nation, we're gonna need to figure it out as a larger, um, I would say community of, of Western democracies.
I, I'm stunned to hear what's going on in your space, although we play in it on a daily basis. My, my last question to you, Corey, before I let you go, um, the U.S. Treasury just came out with, uh, the U.S. Treasury Office of Foreign, uh, Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, I'm sorry, um, just came out with guidance with respects to ransomware and ransomware payments. Do you want to, uh, do you have any comments with respect to the decision or, or the, the, the new guidance that just came out? I'm not familiar with the new guidance, so maybe not I'm negligent problem. in that regard. Not, not a problem. It, it just, <laughs> just, just broke, so, so no worries whatsoever. Okay. Um, last question. Is there anything that I should have asked today that I didn't ask? I, uh, I mean, we, we are at time, so I'm cognizant of that. But um, I, I do think it's important as, you know, we head into a unique and very contentious presidential election that we're able to just have calm voices and that we are able to articulate like, hey, there are very real challenges in our democracy. So I would like to just take a second to, to frame those and then to, to sort of put a lens on it to, to you know, reassure people is one, when you, when you talk about um, US elections, right? We, at a, at a very big wave top and conceptually, we have security at odds with access. If you want a very secure system, you limit access. That's the opposite of what we're trying to do with our voting, right? So you kind of just conceptually have two competing ideas. Um, and then from a security perspective, what complicates it a little bit further is the uh, anonymous vote, right? Like we, we can't confirm, go back to a person like, hey, is this your vote? That's not how that works. Um, so there, there are some challenges, but um, you know, and I, I mentioned this earlier, we have a very decentralized um, form of democracy. I, um, what shock I teach a class at um, Clemson on Homeland Security, and we just did um, the role of state, local, tribal, and territorial governments in uh, Homeland Security. And I think we have, you know, about 90,000 governments within the United States. Um, yeah. When, when you think about that, that is, you know, just the scale of that. And, and I don't know that all 90,000 have election officials, but many of them do. And so you're talking about a very, you know, um, distributed network for our democracy. Um, and so that has tremendous security benefits, right? Like it is very hard to hack something, you know, and create large scale ripple effects when it's that decentralized. So one, I, I think it plays in our favor as security. Um, but it, I do think on a, a downside, um, and one I would say at this point, like, you know, voting digitally um, is aspirational. It is something we are striving for. We don't have the security available to do that, um, which is why the commission recommends um, a paper-based backbone. And the, the another thing about that paper-based backbone to any voting system is one, it speaks to our form of, you know, uh, remote voting capability, right? We need a remote voting capability. This pandemic has highlighted that. Thankfully, for the last, you know, 100 plus years, we have that system, vote by mail, right? It has been very reliable. It has been tried, true, and tested. And that very distributed network of voting officials that have been in charge of our elections for years are familiar with that system and can use it. And it can be scaled. 
Um, so take comfort in that. And then I would say too, um, paper-based backbone also speaks to what is really the lifeblood of our democracy, which is trust. The American people have to trust the results of an election. Um, and that can be, you can have the most secure system. You can have nothing um, you know, from an objective standard, security professionals like you and I can go in and validate everything has happened. But if the information environment has created a perception that, that those results can't be trusted, yep. we're in trouble. Yep. And so there's also a, a disinformation campaign ongoing. And we know that that's all been publicly reported that other nation states, um, you know, some are interested in Trump winning, some are interested in Biden winning, but they're all interested in just seeding discord with or discontent within the United States. They want chaos. Um, so I would ask that we just keep that in mind and kind of, you know, take, take deep breaths, validate your sources of information, and be prepared that we may not have election results on November 3rd, and maybe within the week following, or maybe two weeks. But we have a tried and true system, it's being executed, and we have no reason to, uh, to think that it has been, uh, you know, abused in any manner. Well, Corey, thanks for coming on the show and sharing all of your insights. It's really been a, a very fascinating conversation and uh, your insights are always appreciated and always welcome on the show. Well, so thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate this opportunity and uh, hope we'll be chatting with you again soon.